Oh, yes. This is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. And today's show, sponsored by Cheshire Impact, on a mission to help people maximize their use of Pardot and Salesforce. CheshireImpact.com. Bam. And we're live around the world. Yes, around the world. Hello there. I see you, America and Canada and Belgium and Netherlands and yes, Sierra Leone. I see you too. What's up? This is going to be a good one. I am stoked. Today's guest is, well, let's just say cool. Very cool. Just cool. He's a marketer. He's a thought leader. But he's also put in time on the sales side, so he knows what he's talking about when it comes to that alignment factor. But not even that. He's also a musician, an author, an athlete, and in my opinion, all-around badass. CMO of Brandcast, Chris Schreiber. How are you, sir? Hey, what's up? Man, you got, you got stuff going on. We're going to talk about a bunch of stuff today. I'm, I'm excited. So the theme for today, it's our marketing leadership series, getting people like yourself, you know, thought leaders in the marketing space, changing things up, exploring, pushing on the future, having conversations and figuring out, you know, how do you look at strategy? How do you look at these different things? So that's what today's show is all about. And one of the things I like to do to start here is I want to pass this over to you. This is a little heavy, but I think you got it. This is Thor's hammer. So <laughs> go ahead and take that and smash for me some kind of marketing myth, some kind of bogus strategy you're hearing out there that you just want to set the record straight. Got it. Yeah. You know, I, I think a lot of marketers um, are under the impression that they're, they're managing design uh, well and strategically uh, when in reality, what they're doing is having a lot of internal meetings and making decisions on personal aesthetics. Uh, so they, we, we think with all this conversation, we think we're making rational decisions, but when it comes down to it, just what's look, what looks pretty. I think it's hard to, to not go down that route. You know, at the end of the day, design is one of the most like personal, um, most personal subject areas more so than a lot of us even realize. Um, and it's one of sort of the most like sophisticated areas for marketers to, to try to de develop like a mastery around. Right. Um, and a lot of times it's kind of counterintuitive of how you make design decisions that are good for the business versus design decisions that sort of, make you feel good or make your CEO feel good, uh, et cetera. And so, you, you know, learning to kind of divorce the personal um, from the really sort of strategic uh, decision-making designs, uh, you know, it's an important thing for kind of any marketer to do. And I think the myth is that because you sort of like generated some type of internal alignment around some subset of the company that you've, you've kind of succeeded with design. Um, right. and, uh, and why does this happen? I know it myself. <laughs> why does yeah. it happen? You know, I, I think it's very hard to not talk about the things that you immediately have an opinion on. Uh, it's, you know, you immediately have opinion on colors and images and uh, video and tone. You're a marketer. You're just sort of wired that way to have opinions. Um, and chances are other people you work with are as well. Versus it's often less uh, intuitive to put in the time to really lay out user journey right, to really lay out the results that you're trying to drive, the journey that you're trying to put people on. Um, and that's more of like a learned skill. Um, and a lot of times I think marketers, you know, think that's more of a product responsibility. 
um, and that they're more there for brand decisions. But you know, all of us are responsible for interactive, particularly if you have digital in your title, like you are, yeah. uh, you know, part of your job is user experience. And so you sort of have no choice but to go down some of that discipline right. um, be more familiar with it. And so when you, when you do that, <clears throat> uh, you put in the time around sort of mapping out user journey, mapping out sort of the results and the paths that you're trying to get to, then the decisions around aesthetics uh, take on sort of a different shape. Because you actually do have a common language now for what you're trying to accomplish. And you, it actually does help, I think, divorce some of the personal aesthetic from the sort of shared goals and shared like, alignment around what you're trying to actually do with this right. design. Um, but a lot of marketers skip that step or they sort of have to do it. Um, and they spend a lot of time internally just discussing sort of uh, you know, stylistic elements like sort of color palettes and um, other things that you know, don't necessarily have a North star for what, what are you really trying to accomplish with it? Yeah. Almost like sweating the details when that's not even the, it's like not even the right question to be asking about, mm -hmm. you know, and I like how you brought up the, the fact that sometimes we defer this to product now that product has gotten itself so built out. But I think back to, we've had conversations about this too, where back in the old days, you know, marketing was like the voice of the customer in those product discussions. And, and I, you know, almost like with the digital world, we got so busy, we sort of relegated that to someone else. But in the past, we were so connected to the consumer that we were able to do the marketing, inform product, kind of own that user experience. And, and it looks like we've gotten away from that a little bit. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, um, you know, chances are like successful marketers are staying like really close to the customer base right. and do have an understanding uh, of them. But, you know, that may not translate into um, sort of the nuts and bolts of, of customer journey and user journey uh, when, it, when it turns into the stuff you're creating online. Because um, it may say all the right things. You know, you may have sort of nailed the customer insights on a copy level, but that doesn't necessarily like get them to do the action that's most profitable to you. So, so what's the missing link there? I, I know you've mentioned mapping the journey. How do you do that and use the data? And any, any kind of suggestions like, for people that want to, they're like, ah, I probably have a problem with this too. I love pretty design. How, how do they get away from that? Yeah. I mean, certainly data is important. Like you need to know where you're coming from yeah. uh, to have a sense of where you're going. So, you know, right. I think it's, yeah. it's important to lay out like what, what you're trying to accomplish in terms of behavior and in terms of like actions that you're trying to drive online and, and map out sort of the full um, like decision tree or the, or the full click path that you could be driving and each one of those really being a, a, like a deliberate decision that you're making for um, the content and uh, the user journey. <clears throat> um, and you need to then sort of, I think you need to lay that out in terms of what your, what your path is and get alignment on that and then sort of go back to the data that you do have and, and have a sense of, of what, what it looks like today because you might be bringing some pretty radical changes um, to your designer content. So some of that data just you may have to throw away because it just doesn't look anything like it in the future, but it still is your starting point. And it's also sort of where you b bring it back around on aesthetic. You know, you're, you're unlikely to please everyone with the design. You're mm -hmm. got about a hundred percent chance, but chances are if you're all working for the same company, you're all kind of aligned in terms of where you're trying to go, which is growth for the business. Mm -hmm. And you can have a pretty on the level discussion in terms of, well, this is where we're coming from in terms of how much we've been able to drive so far. You may or may not like this uh, aesthetic path that we're going down, 
but what we can have a conversation about is whether it's working or not relative to where we're coming from. Right. And if you're just, if you're showing growth, you know, against whatever, like the metrics are you choose are important, then on some level your aesthetic choices are working for you, you know? And, and likewise, if they're not, even if you're in love with aesthetic, you have to sort of take a hard look at it, but right. Right. You know, balancing that sort of aesthetic decision, uh, which is very subjective with the data, which if it's, you know, wired up correctly, shouldn't be that <laughs> subjective. Shouldn't be. Yeah. And uh, I think that's how you sort of try to have that, that conversation sort of on both levels at the same time. Okay. That makes sense. And a lot of what I'm getting from that is that mapping out that process allows you to isolate the right data. And then that's like your backstops where ah, I really like to do this, but the stats show X or like, okay, we're going to test out this new design, but if it doesn't perform as well as this other one, then it's out the door you know, and and making decisions that way. I think it's right. And I think it's actually like a faster path to internal alignment because when you're talking about, um, you know, brand and stylistic components, it's literally infinite what you could do. There's not infinite numbers of, you know, actions that you can drive. It's a pretty short list and you can have a pretty focused conversation on sort of like the priority action, the secondary and tertiary and, and, you know, get to alignment faster on that type of subject. Sure. Um, and then it's all about like, is it, are your choices working or not? But until you've sort of laid that out and gotten alignment on that, like the aesthetic decision can be like endless because you, you don't you haven't really agreed on the, the purpose of it. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's what we're trying to get at. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any stories or, or examples of this? Cause when I think aesthetic, it's one of those cool words or just design. Have you seen this play out with Brandcast or with maybe some of your clients? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I think I you know, probably won't, won't name names, but, um, name the guilty or the successful. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's a good sort of, it's, it, it's a good point in terms of why we built Brandcast in the first place. Um, uh, which is, you know, one, you know, probably one of the myths that I could do as my like secondary myth is yeah, that smash. you can build the perfect website in some type of series of internal meetings, you know, that there, and there's historically been this sort of pressure on marketers to feel that you were going to somehow design the perfect website in your Photoshop files and InDesign files because it was just going to be so expensive to build it. And it was going to be so time consuming. You didn't really have the license to get it wrong because mm-hmm. you know you're going to have to go through this whole process again if you did get it wrong. So you, you, know, you should always be very thoughtful about your website process, but you should also expect that, I, I forget what the phrase is, something like, you know, no battle plan lasts, you know, until... Once it, you actually are on the battlefield, this is totally not what the phrase is, but no, no, it's true. I <laughs> first look it up contact, time. I think, like, with, that, with battle. That's what it is. No, no plan those... survives first contact with battle. Right. It's like a Van Helmuth type. Uh, there's an old German general that said that. Yeah, it was. <laughs> but it's true. But like that makes sense though. Taking that and then tying it to websites, mm-hmm. be intentional and plan for changes. Plan to adapt it, not just big waterfall development of your website. You know seven months later you have a new one and then people hate it (laughs) like okay what's not working what's working in in kind of more of that sprint type mentality of what kind of changes could we make and be responsive to our customer exactly yeah i mean i think that whole sort of lean startup like build measure learn mentality is is very much a a a marketer's mentality when it comes to interactive but you know that's that's not necessarily available to you if your if your process for developing websites is you know prohibitively expensive or slow because sure. just you you've chosen um, certain paths and so that that was a lot of the vision for for our company was kind of liberate 
marketing teams to be able to have a lot of freedom around you know the design of their sites but take away the most time consuming and slowest part of it which was just the development aspect right um, and historically you know the the sort of the companies that did that were also kind of handcuffing you on design at the same time and so you had to make that trade off um, and we think like that's that's not a trade off you can actually make as a marketer right um, you can you cannot sacrifice design freedom um, just for speed. So um, if you didn't have to, you know, you might be able to have a, a tool that can really live in that build, measure, learn uh, state and just work with you to get to the answer based on what's actually happening uh, with what you're putting out versus the hypothesis of what might happen um, based on your like, you know, InDesign files. Yeah, no, for sure. It, and, you know, no, no perfect site, you're adjusting, you're adapting. Mm -hmm. Um, I love the direction this sort of the latest, I don't know, five, 10 years have gone with marketing and, and tech. It's almost like, you know, I was a former coder, so I can rag on IT, but IT could be really challenging. They, mm -hmm. the boards, the task delays and the waterfalls, and we just want to get some stuff out there. We got a lot of quick start marketers just want to deploy and test things out. Maybe mm -hmm. not form on it. Just try a little, I think it was like a Tim Ferriss, like shoot the, 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 or like a Jim Collins, like shoot the little musket ball, not the cannonball, you know, like mm -hmm. little ones out there. Um, but when you have that, that, you know, the IT request queue. Um, and so I, what I liked about marketing automation was it sort of took a little bit of that away. It's like, Hey marketer, you can build your own landing page and your email. You don't need someone techie to do it for you. And so it sounds like this is just taken a little bit further where it's like, okay, not just the landing page, but your whole site can be something that doesn't need a coder to do. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. You know, that that um, that sort of very testing hypothesis based uh, rhythm, like we're, we're an extension of that, but you would still, you know, kind of the same starting point and, and you've got these amazing tools with AdWords and sort of the corresponding landing page and, and a lot of companies use us to start there to try to figure out sort of what's working, but then you want to extend that, those learnings pretty quickly, um, you know, to the, to the broader websites, to your sales materials, um, and, you know, for us, that's why we kind of try to design the platform to really be something for the whole customer journey. So as you're getting insights from your landing pages, the, that's a really easy process to pull in um, those assets directly to your sales decks or to your website. It's not two totally siloed products, yeah. which it typically is today for most companies. You know, there's a landing page toolkit, there's sort of a corporate website toolkit, and then there's a sales materials toolkit. Um, and that makes it really tricky to kind of yeah. traverse one to the other. And it just doesn't need to be that way. You know, you, you have the, the fewer sort of the entry points that you have to work with, the better, as long as like they have all the main toolkits that you need. Right. And I think, yeah, you know, that's apps too, right? I mean, you've got three or four apps, three or four subscriptions, doing all these different things. I love when you can consolidate some of that, but because the consolidation then helps with being able to have one talk to the other, you know, and that yep. was the challenge when everything's disjointed, you got to go get some app to integrate them all. Mm -hmm. They're all the, part of the same thing. They, act, they actually start communicating. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Tell, you're kind of, the, I, I, and I really is from talking, you're kind of this like sage of, of, the, of the website world, <laughs> especially where you're taking with brandcast and everything. Do you, do you kind of get a sense for where the future is on that? Like where sites going? I mean, it sounds like a lot of connected stuff, but like, what are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I guess I would put it this way simply, like, if you could make everything exist online, and everything be interactive, you would, of course, you would, you know, you would get more data, 
you would have uh, more opportunity for sort of automation and workflows, but you don't do that today because it's just laughable to think that every single thing you're making could could live online and be its own right. sort of custom website. You've got like PDFs. You've you got PDFs. You have PowerPoints. You just have, you, yeah. you have these things that you you have forgotten didn't used to exist and won't always exist. You know, we're just we're in a phase right now where certain things seem standard and sort of revocable, and other things don't. But um, you know, we're definitely on a one-way street to sort of everything coming online because at the end of the day, like more data is better, more insight True. about what people are interacting with is better. Um, as long as the sacrifice is not too large that you have to make uh, to put, to be able to put it out in some type of interactive state. So, you know, the, the, the barriers to creating like interactive content are going down every year. Um, but the other sort of lagging factor was, yeah, but what am I sacrificing on the design standpoint? Like just because right, I can get right. it online doesn't necessarily solve all my issues because I need a lot of design flexibility because of what we're, where we sort of started the conversation. Yeah, no one will so, read it if it looks like terrible. Yeah, and I need the ability to, to change it quickly. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and, and you can do that obviously with slide decks. You know, you, sure. you can learn quickly what's, what's working and, and you are sort of in the build, measure, learn mentality. The problem is you don't actually have data usually. <laughs> it's right. Like, you know, it's, it's very sparse data and it's very like isolated data. Mm -hmm. Like it's just about your sales deck. So maybe you're right. using some type of clear slide type tracking device, but it, it's still sort of singular versus like a whole view of a customer. Um, so I think those, those are big trends in terms of the barriers to getting to publishing sites, just going down and down, and down, less need for manual coding. The, um, you know, the design capability though, going up and up within the, yeah. this like no code universe which allows right. you to start thinking about a lot of things that aren't websites today um, that could be websites uh, tomorrow so that's that's definitely one big component um, you know the world of, of mobile web design is, is still a very like nascent field and, and a lot of marketers are gonna have to sort of learn to master that and I, I guess I wouldn't say mobile I would say responsive web design yeah yeah sure and so you know the the first trend was like well I'll just shrink it down into like one feed like I'll just take it verbatim and put it into a feed and I guess that's mobile right. design you know, that's obviously like this, the quickest path to getting your mobile website up, sure. but uh, you do need to be able to look at those um, behavior paths on mobile and see what's actually working. And, and, you know, you do need to be able to maintain a fairly different user experience on all of your mobile properties from your desktop properties. So that's the responsibilities there. You just need to do that. Now, what are the tools look like to be able to enable that? Um, and that's where the trend just becomes, um, you know, just moving away from just shrinking it into a single feed uh, into tools that really allow you to kind of give a different, a pretty, you know, significantly different user experience right. on mobile from desktop, but it's not so onerous to maintain that you, you know, that, that you can't. Got to put top. in those requests again, right? Oh, please make this mobile friendly. And then, you know, you're disconnected from the person building it from the marketer who has, who kind of maybe understands the customer. That's really interesting. Thinking about the different experiences between mobile and desktop, you know, mm -hmm. we probably, we understand that that's true, but if you really think about, you know, it's just such a different experience. It's not only is it a smaller window, but what, you know, what is going on here and, and what do the people need to get before they leave? Or is there a call to action? You're right. It's like a, think of it differently but at the same time creating like three different websites three different flows could be challenging so i could see where technology could come in to say actually you know don't worry we're, we're going to help you model that out yeah well i think you know what <clears throat> you can always look to like adwords to be the trend for what anything will happen in the world of marketing technology right. 
So, you know, you think about the way AdWords works today is that the old way of AdWords is I put my exact keyword, I put my exact ad copy, and that's a little bit of the like, oh, I need to get it perfect before it launches mentality. Yeah, the way AdWords works today is that you give them a bunch of keywords that you might want to do some type of broad match to tell you where am I seeing the highest search volume and you give them a bunch of variants of your ad copy and it comes back to you and says, here's the best combination of keyword and ad copy and the algorithm, you know, the machine did that for you. You, you gave it all the inputs. It did work that was far more sophisticated than you could ever do in terms of looking at all the variations. Right. And it it showed you sort of the path, like the same thing will happen with creative Mm. where you will be able to put more and more, um, you know, copy and image and, and media variants into your, um, into your digital marketing and there will be sort of some type of AI or like algorithmic layer that just tells you here's, here's what it is. And it could be on, you know, a device level too. Like here's, here's sort of your highest performing mobile experience based on the inputs that you gave me in, in desktop. I think that's, you know, that's further out, but we sort of know where it's going just because yeah. uh, we, we see it working in other mediums that are more basically like simplistic than a full website is. Right. That's smarter content. That's interesting. Thinking, okay, well, here's the things we want to convey. Maybe here's some potential pictures that may fit, you know, treating, treating even your content like a landing page you're trying to optimize. Mm-hmm. And if it's a PDF, you can't, you'd have no idea. Mm-hmm. And looking at all the different combinations and having something, something smarter than you behind the scenes, adjusting it, kind of doing that multivariate testing and optimization to figure out, Oh, actually, you know, in mobile, we do this and we have an image here and that image and that all works the best. And if it's on the desktop, here's the best look for it. That's mm-hmm. really cool to think about, you know, things getting so dynamic. I mean, we're used to seeing just, you know, the, the site, I think in the past the site could be dynamic, but it was like the CMS that controlled it and that wasn't tucking to the marketing software or CRM, but now that's starting to converge. And now we're seeing not only is it those things, but the whole content itself gets on there i I like it kind of the clickbaity thing i was in my head as you're talking was like chris schreiber death of powerpoint (laughs) like death of the the pdf like pdf killer um because wouldn't you like to have information on it and i've seen apps that do that but again they're just like one little micro app in in the whole grand scheme of the things and then it is it even worth getting it? Does it connect to Pardot? Whereas exactly in this case it's a bigger it's a bigger swath of coverage where it makes it more worth it Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think we, I could totally talk about the death of PDF all day long, but it would not be sort of a one-to-one, like just, just use this app instead of the PDF and you'll be better off. It's more like update your approach. Hmm. Really sort of just like bring your sales enablement approach in line with your digital marketing approach. Like you're already most likely um, a lot further along in terms of the sophistication of your infrastructure for your digital marketing than you are for right. sales enablement. You probably have marketing automation. You probably have uh, analytics set up. You probably have a path for, you know, testing landing pages. Um, and then you look at the sales enablement side and it's like, okay, you're still, you're basically doing the sort of old school world of just look, meeting internally, discussing what you think is the right headline, right. putting it to a PowerPoint, sending it out, maybe getting a little bit of data. That data doesn't say anything else other than what this person has been clicking on for your one deck. Whereas like if you could marry that data set with what you already have in your, your digital marketing stack mm-hmm. and see really like the behavior trends for what they do in your website, what they do with your sales materials, the content they've clicked on, you know, that's where you want to get to. Right. Um, and, and so I think, you know, for us, we think sales enablement is a big 
a big um, area that needs to sort of come up into the um, into the world of kind of just modern digital digital marketing optimization practices. But you can't do that till it becomes interactive. Right. And then when Brandcast meets up with some large CRM and they both they both merge, the world basically ends. There's like a <laughs> error for marketers everywhere, and it just like like. <laughs> it's, be I mean, like, that's, that's a big part world, of the vision. Right? I mean, yeah. I think I, the CRM, like it's, as I've gone through the process, I realized like, all right, the CRM is definitely not going away. Like that's right. that living, breathing, you know, like hub of information that sort of all things um, can take cues from and right. vice versa so that you can bring information back into it. Um, you know, marketing automation, I think is, is still really important, partially because like email is not going away right. as a, like, a really important medium to both authenticate people, but also communicate. Like there's, there's still a lot more people that open emails than I expect, given that like, it's almost impossible to reach me. I feel like with spam mail yet, sure. I think you, it, they work. Um, and you know, so if you have CRM here to stay and you just need to have like a, a really well-organized sales team, keeping data hygiene up, marketing automation being your linchpin for, you know, for data collection, but also most importantly, like workflows, just automated yeah. workflows yeah, to yeah. do something with those data inputs. Then sort of the, you know, the other really important piece is the presentation layer, what you're putting online, your website, your materials, your content. And right now, you know, it's this uh, sort of bifurcated world of offline, online yep. stuff yep. that you're putting out there. And that's where I sort of started the conversation of like, for sure, the offline dominoes are going to fall and you're going to bring it all online because you've already set up your tech stack for it. Like mm -hmm. you should be getting as many inputs as possible. Um, it was just too hard historically to bring sales materials online. Yeah. When the technology catches up, there's that, the, the knee in the curve and the exponential thing just takes off. And then suddenly we all have an iPhone in our hand. It's crazy. Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those things like you, you think things are standard and will always be this way. And then one day you see, you see something that you can never unsee. You're like, okay, actually I was wrong. Everything is changing now. <laughs> Yeah, for me, one of it was when uh, I saw a demo of Qualified. I don't know if you've heard of that. No. Nah. It's, it's like chat. It's like a chat app, but it ties into Pardot and Salesforce. And, hmm. and they're able to see, oh, you're, oh, okay, you're from San Francisco. You're on the site now. And then here's what you're looking at. Like it showed you the live view of someone looking at your site. And you hmm. can chat with them if you want to. And I was like, uh oh, the worlds are colliding. The worlds are yeah. merging. Uh, you can't unsee that to your point. There's, there's these changes that happen. So that's, that's really cool to see where web is going. I, and I think it kind of is that thing that once it, we got it built, we, we sort of left it alone and didn't realize it's actually like our biggest asset. Yep. Most people hit that. I think it's right. I mean, I think people sort of, they, they leapfrogged from sort of uh, websites to apps and yeah. sort of forgot about, like, well, just bringing sort of my full array of, of external content that I'm putting in the world, interactive. And, sure. and some, some companies, you know, the app may be the right path. Like that's the primary communication vehicle and, and they can um, do away with some other things. But most companies, like the app is not the primary communication vehicle with, with their customer. Right. And so they're in this sort of fragmented world of offline, online content. And right. that's right. a, a trend that we feel pretty strongly yeah, is going to change. Well, let's take a step back and and I want to talk to you. you you're you're the the marketing leader at your company. You are the one looking at like maybe the biggest of the big picture. Mm -hmm. when you when you first came to Brandcast or just as a CMO, what do you look at? Like how how do you first look at a company you come into and then try to organize all these different layers and all these different 
aspects of marketing, your overall strategy, your overall approach to marketing for a company? Yeah. Yeah. It's a big question. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I was really attracted to this, um, to company to, to Brandcast cause it was speaking to a pain point that I had felt kind of time and time again. Sure. Um, and, and that was, you know, just specifically around like website, you know, creation and management. It always just felt harder than it should have been more expensive than it should have been slower than it should have been. Um, but I never in any of my previous, you know, head of marketing jobs found a solution that works perfectly other than just a very expensive development team. Yeah, right. yeah, that, at the end of the day, that's still probably like the best solution, but that's, that's a tough one because that's, that's a, a that's a tough like functional area to manage mm-hmm. as a marketer, just like you don't necessarily have the background. And if it really is a really talented developer, chances are they want to be doing things beyond just your marketing websites. Your marketing, yeah. Uh, but so, you know, I was attracted to that opportunity. I think that gave me some level of like immediate sense of, how to position ourselves and market ourselves. Um, and so I, I, you know, try to organize like a lead generation um, program around what I immediately knew. But I think mm-hmm. with, with any job, um, particularly like an earlier stage company, the, the full picture doesn't sort of set in for a little while until you start um, going with what you know, going with messaging and positioning that's familiar to you and, and seeing how it's working to, to actually realize like, is this, is this the full story or not? There's something bigger. Um, and, you know, for me, it's a mix of getting out and market a lot, you know, being on as many sales calls as you can, you know, being at a lot of different types of events, speaking at events, trying to get feedback there. Um, and just like a lot of sort of internal interviewing, um, really trying to hear the way product teams talk and think about the product um and because a lot of times like the very specific language choices of your product team can be very fascinating because they are not wedded to any type of like brand positioning that you're using usually they try to the most efficient language possible to describe what they think um is meaningful sure and so you know for for me i try to just get get in sort of get in the bunker with the sales and product teams to really figure out what's working what's not working um and then just sort of continually test uh, the market, you know, through thought leadership and through, through sort of lead generation. Um, and for us, you know, what the way it's evolved is that this is a much bigger story than improving just the website management process for websites you already have. Sure. The big story is the webification story. Okay. All of this content that, um, as we've been talking throughout this conversation, all of this sort of business content that should be online but no one just has even thought about how you would ever merge your entire sales library into websites. Sure. It seems laughable and impossible, but as it, you know, as we've sort of gone down the path, I realized like, wow, the world of PDFs and PowerPoints are ripe for disruption. Sure. They've been around for a long time, not for great reasons. You're, you're sacrificing a lot of customer insight by using them. And if the barriers went down on the ability to publish a website and, um, you know, have a lot of like control over design of it, you would, you would do that. And like the benefits are pretty massive, you know, just a much more complete customer profile that you can get a lot more, um, you know, positive experiences on mobile. Cause like if you open up a PowerPoint or PDF on your phone, you're just like not that motivated to spend time with it. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's sort of evolved from just a website, sort of website management improvements to a much bigger story around webification and like the tidal wave that I, that I see coming. You know, I think Brandcast is a part of it. Um, 
And, uh, and so that, you know, when you have sort of those extra layers of insight about the opportunity, you have to really recalibrate uh, how you're doing marketing. Yeah, um, you have to, I think the big thing is you have to, you have to sell the story internally. You have to really paint the bigger picture and get people aligned and excited. Yep. And if you do that, that's great. But then people sort of get impatient. They're like, okay, now get that story out there. Yeah, right. <laughs> I love that story. Go run with it. Um, and so I, I think at, at early stage companies, you know, you have multiple phases of reinvention. Um, that's just part of the journey. And even at, you know, I worked at Google for a long time. It was the same mm -hmm. thing. Like we completely reinvented ourselves. It felt like sort of every couple of years, uh, I was there from 2005, 2008. And so like, you know, that was, that was before they even launched the Chrome browser. You know, they, they just barely starting to talk about mobile. Like mm -hmm. you know, they were sort of priming the company for like this, we are going to be a completely different operation a year from now and, and sort of constantly putting out the, um, the reasoning for why they were about to change things so much. Um, and I think, you know, that's, it's, it's really important for the marketing team and executive team to kind of always be assessing the <clears throat> sort of the market that you're going after, the why you're going after it and how you're communicating that. Um, so kind of a long, it's a, it's a big question. So I have it is. a long answer, but. That, no that, worries. That, yeah, no, it's, it, it, I mean, it's good to hear where your, your, your mind goes on that too. And kind of the bonus, it sounds like it's fun when you're the customer of your own thing too. Yeah. Because then, then you're not, you don't have to make up some story or, or find a story from some, you know, um, IT customer. I once almost, uh, I was offered a job helping, uh, it would be marketing for developer tools for Java. And it was like, man, yeah. <laughs> it, it's a lot more fun selling to marketers if you're a marketer. Um, I think that's right. I mean, I think that's definitely advice I would give to kind of anyone that's that's earlier in their career. Like, you, if you're in the startup world, if you're in the tech world, like you, your likelihood for success is definitely higher if you can feel the pain, if you can get the pain, versus having to be sort of second secondhand hearing about other people's experience with it. It's 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 a harder path when you don't feel it personally. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. A harder path. And that's cool. We'll, we'll come back to some, uh, some career tips too. That's a, that's a good one. Um, you know, my question is like, who are you? Where did you come from? How did you become musician, soccer, rock star, Googler, CMO now? Like, yeah. Take me back. Uh, like, oh, Chris. Yeah. I, I grew up in Boston. Um, nice. music, music's always been a huge part of my life. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, like creative DNA in my family. We've got a number of like painters and, uh, film, directors and actors and I think the music bug just kind of hit me so um, music was always a real passion I was always kind of trying to like take it from the idea to a song and to play with others to a band to just keep pushing it um, further and, and, and played a lot of different instruments um, and I was always really serious what about, I you know I was most serious about percussion until nice. sort of after college but yeah all the way through college like percussion was kind of my main focus and just like Loved all forms of percussion, loved, you know, jazz, rock, um, you know, sort of West, West African, like gamelan, all, all types of stuff I was into. Um, and then um, when I, when I left college, I didn't like started to just play a lot of like piano and guitar on, on the side, but then kind of switched um, in my mid twenties to playing like piano and guitar with bands, mainly just because I got sick of dragging around drum sets, I think. Yeah. I, yeah. I have a buddy that does that. He goes to the car, right? The whole car is full. Yeah. It's the worst. You know, I mean, one thing I always loved about drums, 
uh, there's a couple things like one, like getting all four limbs to do something different is like a really <laughs> major breakthrough. Um, yeah. And it's, it's like really fascinating to like divorce your brain from your body that way. Cause it's just so counterintuitive that all four limbs would be doing a different action. Um, and I always love just like, like muscle memory. Is that what that is? Like, how do you, how do you get I to mean, that? Zen moment? It is. I think that's, that is part of it is you do, you do all these things very repetitively. So you teach your individual limbs sort of different <laughs> muscle memory, and then you start to learn how to do it kind of all at the same time. Got it. Um, and there's sort of like endless, you know, like you, you're very rote at the early stage of your drum, drumming career. Like you're just kind of doing the exact same beat. Yeah. At least you got all four limbs to be able to do that one beat. And then you just keep learning sort of like individually with, with the, you know, the kick drum, the hi-hat, the snare, whatever, start to get off of that very rote rhythm. And sure. it's, it's, it's a cool, just sort of infinite process, you know? Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and then, yeah, the other, I think, you know, major influence on me was always sports, like growing up in Boston, definitely like a huge sports town. I, I kind of played all sports um, throughout my life, but soccer was the one that I, I got the most serious about and, and played through through college and I think um <clears throat> you know my, my so my uncle played football at Notre Dame and and oh, wow. you know came from a pretty serious uh, athletic family and he's also a really smart guy and and he said something to me that's always stuck with me and I think it's so right on which is that like sports is like a really essential thing um when you're younger because it teaches you to experience all of the most extreme emotions in a safe place you know the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows so you kind of get broken in as a human being you know, you experience those highs and lows, but you're still on the field. You didn't, nothing actually that serious happened. <laughs> right. But you've especially, now, especially if you really get into it, you create that feeling that switch the low of the low of losing or, or winning that game. But it's good because like now you've experienced that emotion and yeah. it might be the first time you, you ever experienced that level of, you know, frustration or anger or sadness or joy or whatever. But like once you experience it, you're a little broken in. So when something happens in your <laughs> life later, you like, you're you're a little bit more ready to handle things just because yeah. you had that. I, I I always thought that was like such an interesting way of thinking about things, and I think it's totally right on. Um, and I you know I, I definitely like have taken a lot of things from just sort of what I learned about working on teams, you know, on on sports teams and being part of the team and and coaching into my career. I think it's you know both of them, music and sports. I think have had a big impact on like the who I am professionally. Yeah, I could see that being the case, and you know, wow, like two different, two different aspects, but you know, experiencing those emotions while at the same time expressing, you know, the creativity in all four limbs and, and just really getting into it. And, you know, it's almost like you see that too, the, uh, you know, that marketing world where it kind of takes that the analytical and the creative and it sort of meshes them together. You know, you got the measures with four, four time, but at the same time, you kind of riff it a little bit and totally. do your own thing. I think that, yeah, that's an awesome analogy. That's totally right on. Sweet, sweet. So what made you then go to school for poli sci? What, you didn't go to music school or? Yeah. Know? I mean, I, I took a lot of music classes. Um, you know, I, I poli sci, I think, um, I actually thought like poli, like studying government was a really interesting way to study other countries. Um, like you sort of got some history in there, you got culture in there, but you also learned about sort of the power structures. And so I ended up taking a lot of like foreign um government classes and i think that's what probably tipped me over in terms of just the number of credits for poli sci because I, I remember being a sophomore is like history psychology and poli sci were all equal in terms of the number of credits i had i could have gone any three directions but then uh, 
there was like a West African government or like an African government class that I was really excited about. And there was like another, uh, I think like Asian government class that I was interested in. I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to be a poli sci major. Poli sci, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I still think that, I mean, I, I think like, you know, studying governments of other countries is a way to sort of learn a lot about a country. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think in this day and age, certainly I'm still paying a lot of attention uh, to what's going on politically. I think I always have, but like, that's, that's definitely a majority of the podcasts I listen to. Right. Yeah. You know, and you could tell it's a passion. I mean, you're taking these, these courses that to other people, they'd be like, Oh my gosh, like, why would I take that? But <laughs> yeah. if you're excited about it, you know, then yeah, do what excites you. Do you think, well, I mean, what, what do you think you, you draw on, you know, maybe after the fact from your marketing, do you, does that poli sci come in in place or the study of other cultures or people, or is it just that sort of other passion? I don't think so. I mean, I think, um, you know, you, liberal arts college is a lot about, it's like learning how to learn um, okay. yeah, yeah. And, um, and learning how to write. I, uh, so when I, um, I was finishing up college, all I had left was my thesis um, and I was writing a thesis around sort of like the consolidation of media um, and how that had been used um, in both like Nazi Germany and Soviet mm -hmm. Union to actually like, you know, bring forward these like terrible regimes. And right. this was, um, you know, this is right after 9-11. There was a lot of consolidation in media happening, a lot of, um, you know, sort of question marks about where we were going in, in terms of manipulating media to to drive to the iraq war mm. um, and so i had this whole sort of like heavy-handed thesis about how consolidation in media in the u.s is putting us on a path towards totalitarianism and i actually got sure. a job at the conan o'brien show um and and conan's like a very deep academic um really? like double double major at harvard american culture and american history no kidding um, and so, and I was like deep in the heart of writing this thesis, thesis. I kind of laid it out for him, my whole argument. And that was, I always remember that point because it was a real sort of crossover point for me going from like the academic mindset to the real world mindset. Mm -hmm. Cause he's like, let me just sort of play out your thesis for you. Like I am working, uh, for no, wait, this is Conan saying this to you. Yeah. Wow. I, I am an anchor on NBC, which is owned by GE which, you know, is, is going to want certain things from the government uh, to keep it afloat. So you're saying that I am going to be limited in what I can say on my show because of this thesis around consolidation media and that sort of our ability to have free speech and my personal ability, Conan O'Brien, to say what I want to show is, is, is going to go away. He's like, That's, let's just play that out in terms of what I'm going to go do tonight. He's like, none of this, none of this is true. Really? <laughs> he's, like, he's like, you're a very theoretical mindset here and i take the point around the historical implications but sort of helped me level set with like where we actually how the world actually works versus how it theoretically could work and it i don't know it just really changed i just remember it was such a sort of grounding for me to get out of sort of the books and and into like the real world of you know of of careers and jobs and people and and move from that sort of theoretical academic mindset into real world and I feel like that was that transition point for me is like all right well I guess I learned how to write a little bit I learned how to research in college but a lot of the actual content I learned probably is not gonna be that relevant to having jobs in media or having jobs in tech 
what was i mean were you kind of like pissed after that i mean conan kind of was that was awesome i I think he like you know i because i immediately got it because he was like i'm i'm not gonna speak he didn't speak in broad strokes sort of philosophical stuff he's like i'm 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 just gonna speak in plain language about real real things (laughs) right and and like i'm not gonna be anyone's stooge yeah he's like that's you know that is not true for my life today and let's think about all things that would have to happen for that to become true for my life. And how likely do you really think that is? Right. Uh, and, and it, I think it just helped me get away from a tone that was very sort of, I don't know, like overly alarmist in some ways and not as rooted in, in the actual flow of, of communication and media and much more rooted in just what I was reading from what had happened a long time ago. Right. So it's like, I think he was engaged by the subject matter um in the thesis but i think he also just wanted to like help me reel it in uh in terms sure. of what what really are my predictions right now like to help it be a little bit more i think useful than what i was tr- the argument i was trying to make versus sort of a really big sweeping argument that was was that was just sort of off base what was that like working with him and did you work with him it on was, a daily basis it was cool i mean i i i was a um i was on a general staff and i worked uh on sort of whatever kind of needed to be done that day it was it was like just an entry-level job you know the most interesting work that i did was under the line producer who wrote interview segments and doing like researching guests that were coming on um and just trying to come up with like an angle for questions Mm. Um, and and you know that was some of the most like interesting work for me but um so how how did you do that real quick like how how do you look for an angle when you're doing those read what what went through your mind you're looking at people um you know you try to like just look at what they're up to recently look at their career try to find like a you know a unique angle that doesn't feel like it's been talked about a million times um like i remember russell simmons was coming on um and i was doing some research on him and i think i think he had like trademarked the word deaf which i thought was like really funny um like whoa you own the word deaf because like deaf especially like you know, early 2000 was still kind of being used in like yeah. more kind of like, I don't know. It didn't feel like a word that could be trademarked, but. Right. Um, somehow he had it. Did, and it was like it, their whole spoof on that on the show kind of thing. Or? And I, that was sort of like the angle that I came up with and like they, they used it a little bit and kind of like went off in a totally different direction. But sure. um, I remember that was, that was one of the questions that did get asked of like, so you, you own the word deaf. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I yeah. think, I mean, that's important because it, I mean, even to this day, I mean, whether it's TV or podcasts or whatnot, it's, you know, looking at people and seeing what kind of, I don't say angle, but what, what's their story, you know, because oftentimes it's, it's those experiences that maybe shape their, their later view of how things go. Yep. Yep. Um, but yeah, I moved on pretty quickly from, from media to tech and, and went to Google after that. Um, and what I, was that like? Uh, that was definitely different. Um, you know, I, I was, I was there when I was there, it was about, 5,000 people globally when I started and okay. I left uh, four years later and it's 25,000 people globally. Holy, like yeah. how did you went from five to 25 and you were there. Yeah. This is happening. Some, something like that. So it's yeah, it just every year, just rapid growth and, and rapid evolution of the company. Um, and I spent most of my time just working like the consumer app side. So I, I originally worked on the Gmail team and that was sort of as, as Google evolved from, um, being very focused on search and ads to sort of adding the third pillar to uh, search ads and apps. Yeah. Um, and this is even sort of really before the mobile explosion. Uh, I was there 2005 to 2008. Um, but it was fun to really be on that like consumer app 
side, as you could see, like just, you know, the commitment and like all this opportunity around photos and blogging and email and calendars. And, you know, probably the one that's like stuck with me the most was Google Docs. Um, Like they, Google Docs was was an acquisition um, company, company called Rightly, I think. Um, And it was, yeah, I mean, this vision for like online word processing um that like rightly that's weird yeah yeah and uh i think you know i think that acquisition happened and then it sort of went quiet for a while then google rolled out its its product um which was google docs and uh the horror of microsoft everywhere well i think it was like (laughs) such a cool vision such a like feeling that this is inevitable but it also it took a while yeah i I was I, i was um we were sort of you know constantly looking for for use cases to market on the team and um, and the one that kept coming up like really easily for us was just weddings, um, really? and it was like oh yeah it makes sense because you got like all these different time zones, people all, all different places trying to find one place to sort of have this running conversation with all of these details. So you can see like the email thread would just like go nuts, mm-hmm. and you know, um, and there were you know the, it wasn't like Google Docs works incredibly well now I think Agreed. with all the sort of multi-tenant collaboration. It definitely had some like bumps in the road earlier on where two people, three people, five people in the same dock at the same time, you would, you could run into some, some hurdles, but I think the weddings one made sense because your chances are you're in lots of different time zones. So mm-hmm. You're less likely to all be the, in there at the exact same time. And it's also just like probably such a win in terms of one, you know, one place that you can all go to to see the most updated version of something. Right. And, yeah. and that was, I mean, just remember that was the use case that sort of made me realize like, wow, this is going to be like, yeah, futuristic. Is, You're like, be yeah. so huge. it's going to be huge for business. It's going to be huge for consumer. Like, um, and so working on that product was really fun. I think, cause I just kept watching it improve. Right. And then, um, and then the Google apps like enterprise, you know, suite came out oh, and yeah. that was, you know, that was one of the linchpins of that offering still is, 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 is Google docs. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I was at Google for about four years and, and massive growth, learned a lot about, um, you know, just how to build like a really high performance culture, learned a lot about um, right. like what I'd say is like risk taking. Like they definitely, I worked on a lot of things that, you know, did not last very long, but they- Were you on Wave? No, Wave was a little bit after my time. Okay. Um, <laughs> but- uh, AKA Slack. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um. But yeah, it's, yeah I've, I've worked with startups ever since. Um, but yeah, hopefully you can turn uh, one of them into the next Google. Right. Now, now when, I, when I first asked you about it, you said it was different. That was the first word you went to. Was it just like a different culture, different way of operating? What, different in all regards? What, what, like, what brings that to mind? And, well, I meant like specifically it was different from Conan. Oh, yeah, um, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, and it hasn't been that different from kind of most places I've worked ever since. Okay. There's, there's a rhythm or at least I, I certainly like seek out companies that um, have a culture that, that remind me of a lot of things that I liked about Google. I think, um, you know, Google, a lot of intelligent people, there's sort of this endless sense of like the potential for innovation. Right. Um, and, and just speed. I mean, just like every single day. Uh, just a, like an expectation for how much you're trying to get done, how much you're trying to push things into the future. Right. And, uh, and I think, you know, that's, that, that was a rhythm that I learned there that I've sort of tried to keep ever since. 
That's cool. I see, I see that trend, right? I see that you're involved in like the future products that define how we do things at Google. And it sounds like you're still doing that. You're still in these, and it's like, it's almost like before, you know, thinking about the curve or the chasm, right? You're mm-hmm. in the early stage. You're trying to get, you know, get that adoption in there, but you like being a part of what the future will be. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I get excited by that subject, you know, of trying to like, envision the future be sort of right about where it's going and try to solve the problems before people even get there. Yeah. Yeah. They don't even know there's a problem and you're solving it for them. Mm-hmm. Take it for granted. You know, like when we took for granted that you had to keep attaching a same revision of a document every time you emailed the, the update to the rest of the team and you had like nine different versions of the doc and you're, Yep. Version control and all that. Now it's just like uptime, your real time updated. I just totally. sent a link out. <clears throat> well, and I, and I feel the exact same thing happening with, with Brandcast and, mm. you know, a lot, of, a lot of the webification aspect of it, you know, like particularly around sales decks, you know, you think about like what a problem it is when you send a sales deck to a prospect and you like put in the wrong pricing or something. <laughs> like, oh, sorry. Like, uh, don't look at that. And okay. That wrong. discount's not for you. <laughs> yeah. You know, or like it's it's so painful if you want to add things or get things wrong. And you know, when you live in the world of of web content, like you don't have to have all those emails. You can just just change it, and like you're just always fresh on on what you're putting in front of them. Right, right. You don't have to send off a tech request. Good yeah, stuff, man. Good stuff. Hey, where can people connect with you? Throw out some links. You know, is Twitter good? LinkedIn. <clears throat> yeah, Twitter's good. I'm I'm uh, at cousin Chris. Where does that come from? Are you like a cousin? Do you have like a thousand cousins? I, I, so I, when I first moved to San Francisco, I, I had a few cousins and that was sort of how I like met everyone. Um, and so like for like years, everyone, I would be introduced that this is my cousin, Kit, my cousin, Chris, you know, <laughs> cool. and then people started to like just knowing me as cousin Chris. Right. And then, um, I actually started a band called cousin Chris. Really? Right on. Man. You owned it. You're like, Oh yeah. I was like, I'm this. just going to lean into yeah. it. This is yeah. definitely what people are calling me. Sick. Okay, so at cousin Chris, uh, at cousin Chris, yeah, LinkedIn easy to find. Absolutely. Um, and that, what about um, like with Brandcast? Any anything going on? Should we be checking out webinars coming up or some some of this content? You know, should should we check out some of uh, what you're up to? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think just come to the site Brandcast.com, and and you'll definitely be able to navigate your way to a lot of things that we're that we're working on there. And behind the scenes, things are moving and changing. We don't even have any idea. We're just like willing participants in this cool experiment this sort of futuristic stuff that's right that's right i think you know i i, I I'm, I'm excited to be sort of involved in like what i think is gonna be kind of the next chapter of the web you know just next chapter of content right on right on well cool man all right man thanks a lot yeah well thank you so much i mean i really appreciate it it's been fantastic yep thanks man thanks for the time yeah, anytime, man. And for everyone else out there listening, if you learned something on this, and I know you did because I literally have pages of notes, then share this with someone else. You be a thought leader to someone else and get this in their hands and then check out Brandcast and, uh, and see, see what's cranking, see what the future looks like. And uh, thanks again, Chris. And for everyone out there, this has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. We will catch you all next time.